This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. Today's show is one of our postscript podcasts in which we invite authors to react to contemporary political events that engage their scholarship. The Supreme Court recently wrapped up their term and also announced that they will hear a very controversial case about domestic abuse, the power of Congress, and the right to keep and bear arms called United States versus Rahimi. And we have two experts on the Supreme Court to unpack the case. I'm thrilled to welcome back Joseph Bloker, Lanty L. Smith, 67 professor of law at Duke University School of Law. He co-authored The Positive Second Amendment, Rights, Regulation, and the Future of Heller from 2018 with Daryl Miller, and has a forthcoming article in the Yale Law Review co-authored with Eric Rubin entitled Originalism by Analogy and Second Amendment Adjudication. In addition to his numerous influential law review articles and nuanced public-facing scholarship in print, radio, and TV, he was one of the attorneys who helped write the brief for the District of Columbia in Heller, and he's contributed to an important brief in New York State uh, Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin last year for the court. Uh, Andrew Willinger is the executive director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law at Duke University Law School and writes commentary for the center's Second Thoughts blog. He joined the center after practicing as a litigation associate at Patterson, Belknap, Webb, and Tyler in New York. At Patterson, Willinger litigated complex commercial disputes and false advertising and defamation cases. He previously clerked for Judge William L. Austin, Jr. of the Middle District of North Carolina. He has a new article forthcoming in the Washington University Law Review that engages originalism entitled The Territories Under Text, History, and Tradition. Joseph and Andrew co-authored a recent article in the journal Polity, Does the Second Amendment Make Gun Politics Obsolete?, which is all too relevant for this case today. And I'm happy to welcome both of you back to PostScript. Thank you so much for having us, Susan. Thanks, Susan. Glad to be here. So let's start with the basics of this case, and then we'll circle back to how your joint scholarship on the Second Amendment and your separate scholarship sheds light on the case. So the Supreme Court's going to hear this case that might expand expand Second Amendment rights and restrict the power of Congress to take away guns from people who are under restraining orders for intimate partner violence. Uh, I'll give very brief version of the facts. We can add more as are necessary. But in 2009, I don't think many people know about this case yet, unless you do the Second Amendment. Uh, in 2019, Mr. Zachary Rahimi had an argument with his girlfriend in a parking lot, and Mr. Rahimi knocked the woman to the ground. Um, as he dragged her back to his car, she hit her head on the, the car's dashboard. Later in a telephone call, Rahimi threatened the woman that he would shoot her if she told anyone about the assault. A few months later, a Texas state court entered a domestic violence restraining order against Rahimi, and the order also barred Rahimi from possessing a gun based on part of a federal statute, the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994. The court warned Mr. Rahimi that possessing a gun would be a federal felony. About a year later, while the order was still in effect, Mr. Rahimi was a suspect in a series of shootings, and when the police officers searched his home pursuant to a warrant, they found, among other things, a pistol, a rifle, and ammunition, along with a copy of the restraining order. He was charged with violating the federal ban on the possession of a firearm by anyone who is the subject of a domestic violence restraining order. He pleaded guilty and was sentenced to just over six years in prison. Rahimi contended that the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 94 was an unconstitutional violation of his Second Amendment rights, and the Fifth Circuit heard the case, and they decided that the law was constitutional. Mr. Rahimi did not have Second Amendment rights. That had been violated. But a year later, the Supreme Court 
changed the standards for how we interpret the Second Amendment or how they interpret the Second Amendment uh, in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, the sec- Fifth Circuit issued a second decision, and they found that the law unconstitutionally deprived Mr. Rahimi of his guns. So this is complicated, um, and we're going to do our best to make it simple and understandable and uh, and clear as to what's at stake. So so let's start with the changing standards. Joseph, I'm going to go to you because you wrote a brief for Rune all about these standards. Uh, there was an old standard, an, an old way that the the court had to address an issue like this, and now there's a new way. Can, can you walk us through why it is that the district court would reverse itself? Yeah, I mean, I think the way you set it up there, uh, Susan, is, it puts it beautifully that you know prior to Bruin, which was the opinion from last summer, the federal courts of appeal had unanimously, everyone that had reached the question, adopted the same tests for evaluating Second Amendment claims that is, you know, for evaluating whether a gun law is consistent with the right to keep and bear arms. And the sort of short version of the old test uh, is that it had two parts. It's often called the two-part framework, where essentially courts would ask, first, does this law, you know, touch on anything that's covered by the Second Amendment? Because as the Supreme Court itself has said many times, not all people, not all weapons, and not all activities actually fall within the amendment at all. Some of them are just like off the island. They don't even trigger... Uh, trigger constitutional scrutiny. For those that did, that is the ones that do or did fall within the Second Amendment, courts would go on to a second question and essentially ask, has the government shown that this law is sufficiently tailored to an important government interest in, you know, preserving life, preventing terror, and so on, right? Very familiar sort of structure of how constitutional rights adjudication works. The brief um, that I signed, along with uh, Daryl Miller and Eric Rubin, argued that the Supreme Court should preserve that that two-part framework and not adopt uh, the alternative test it was considering, um, often called the test of text, history, and tradition. Unfortunately, uh, we were not able to convince the justices, and the court in Bruin did adopt this alternative test um, or some version of it. And so the new version says that if you're evaluating the constitutionality of a modern gun law, what you should do is ask whether it is consistent with this nation's historical tradition of gun regulation. Now, uh, as we said in our brief, that introduces all kinds of complications and difficulties. And in fact, when you and I talked uh, soon after the case came out, one of the things I, I pointed to almost as you know, a a suggestion of how preposterous it could be to look just to history for guidance would be things like, well, how do you evaluate, you know, prohibition of guns on airplane cabins, right? They didn't have those at the the time. And another example that I used was, well, in the late 1700s, there weren't a lot of laws uh, directly regulating the connection between guns and domestic violence. But surely, surely it would be crazy to think that today we can't keep guns out of the hands of domestic abusers or suspected domestic abusers or people who were found by a judge to be dangerous. And that's exactly what Rahimi is about. Um, So in a way, it's like the Fifth Circuit took that example, which I thought to be preposterous, and has written it into into law. So that's sort of the the line between from Bruin to, uh, to, to Rahimi, to the Fifth Circuit's decision in Rahimi anyway. Supreme Court announces a new test. This Fifth Circuit panel anyway says that it rules out this kind of law. Think that's wrong, even under the Bruin test, but that's where we are now. And I want to underline this idea of newness because the test is called history, tradition. And I think many people misunderstand this to mean that that test has been around for a long time. But as you have written in many places, both of you, 2008, which is when the Heller case is decided, is, is really a very new way of approaching the Second Amendment. There had been an old way that had been thought about for almost 200 years, over 200 years. And then last year with Brune, the court took it in an even more sort of, I would call it radical direction in that this demand for an analogy, some sort of historical analogy. And as you say, that creates difficulties since, for example, there were not domestic uh, abuse restraining orders in the United States for a very long time. And as we'll talk about later, in fact, 
domestic abuse was accepted. It is part of the tradition, if you want to talk about the 18th and 19th century, for it to be okay for a husband to beat his wife up to a point. Um, and courts certainly did not stop them. So it's going to be very, quite difficult, considering that these domestic violence laws didn't begin until the 1970s, and here this 1994, to, to prove that. So, so I guess all I want to underline is that though the word tradition is there, actually what you were proposing in your brief was much closer to the tradition that we had had in, in the Supreme um, Court. Um, before we go into what the Fifth Circuit said, which I'm very puzzled by, how common is it to have a court issue another decision in response to a Supreme Court ruling? Um, is this something we see all the time? Was this something unusual? To have the Fifth Circuit reconsider? Uh, yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, to have the Fifth Circuit say, nope, I'm sorry, we were wrong. The court changed its mind. Now we change our mind. I think it's not particularly common, but in this situation, given the radicalness of what Bruin did, um, I think it's understandable. I mean, uh, the as a measure of just how much law the Supreme Court changed with the Bruin decision. You know, one of the probably the most common online um, uh, uh, sort of repository of um, uh, legal research, Westlaw, which is where people, you know, people who are doing the legal research would look up cases and stuff. Um, they, they have a mechanism by, whereby they put a red flag next to cases that have been overturned, right, uh, or cast into doubt. Um, and within days of Bruin coming down, as far as I could tell, basically every single pre-Bruin Second Amendment case had a red flag on it, which meant that all of that precedent, accumulated precedent, more than a thousand cases just between Heller and Bruin had been cast into doubt. And so I think the Fifth Circuit, you know, to, to sort of check its work, I guess, if you like, on the constitutionality of, of this provision in 922G, which is the federal statute, I think that makes sense. Again, I don't think this case had to come out the way it did, even under the Bruin test. Um, but to the fact of reconsidering it, I think, makes sense in light of what the Supreme Court did in the in the Bruin case. And it's just a measure of how much, frankly, chaos there is in the lower courts. And Andrew is much closer to this because he reads the, the the lower court's opinions much more um, uh, with much much closer eye than I do these days. But there's just a lot of confusion. And I'm going to ask Andrew. I'm going to ask you about that in just one in one second. So the 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 I, I want to underscore something that you said, Joseph, which that even if you accept the Bruin test about history and tradition, Bruin didn't need to have been decided as it was. And so we have sort of two layers here. One is a shift in the test, and the second is a uh, I would call uh, chaotic or uh, ideological or capricious approach to originalism in which we do have much history and one could find in favor of New York State's 100-year-old statute in terms of history and tradition, but in fact, the justices don't because they are cherry-picking the history. So we have sort of two levels, the switch of the question, and then we have the application of history. And there's been some question as to whether these justices who are not trained historians are actually very good at discerning what is a good source and not a good source. Andrew, I cut you off. Let, let's talk about... Uh, uh, the the lower court's decision and your observations about it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I just wanted just to, to briefly sort of emphasize the, the point that Joseph made, you know, uh, having read a lot of these uh, district court decisions that have come out since Bruin, I, I agree. It, it's not all that uncommon to see, you know, cases that, that were pending before Bruin sort of be, you know, basically the parties will file new briefs um, because it's a, it's a new test, right? And so that, that aspect sort of makes sense. Um, but it's also true that courts have, I think, been been very confused and reached uh, conflicting outcomes on a lot of major pieces of state and federal gun regulation. Um, so the domestic violence restraining order provision at issue in Rahimi is one example of that. But we've seen other uh, subsections of this this piece of the federal criminal code, right, that contains a domestic violence restraining order ban. It also bans. Uh, convicted felons, uh, domestic violence, domestic violence misdemeanors, um, you know, unlawful users of controlled substances. There's a long list of, of, of status-based prohibitions, and for some of those, we've we've similarly seen uh, lower courts come out differently. Rahimi is sort of the first uh, big appellate decision that we've seen, and now that that's that's why it's it's sort of the first in line uh, to go up to the Supreme Court. So, Andrew, tell me a little bit about your reading 
of this opinion from the Fifth Circuit, Judge Wilson's majority um, opinion. You know what what's there, um, uh, and uh, I have much to say about it, but I'm very interested in what you have to say. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, so, uh, in in the majority opinion in in Rahimi, um, the panel, uh, you know. I think concludes very, very quickly that that this first threshold step of the Bruin analysis, right, you know, determination of whether the conduct at issue implicates the Second Amendment, they pretty quickly conclude that the answer is yes. And that's an analysis here that's focusing solely on conduct and not status. And that's an important distinction that we've seen, uh, I think, confuse some courts after Bruin. We've seen courts apply this, this first threshold inquiry differently. Um, But here the court says, you know, we're not really concerned with whether uh, Mr. Rahimi is part of the people who are protected by the Second Amendment, because we construe that term very broadly. It includes anybody who is a member of the political community. Um, And so Rahimi's part of the people. He's protected. And then you move on to the second step of determining whether the law is consistent with historical tradition. Um, and in Bruin, the court says this is the government's burden. So the government bears the burden of coming forward with analogous laws from either around the time of the founding, when the Second Amendment was ratified in 1791, or maybe also from 1868, when the 14th Amendment was ratified. Not really clear exactly how, uh, how, how far that, that time, you know, horizon stretches, um, which is one of the, the, the uh, important points that I think the court left unsettled in Bruin. Um, but here there are, there are three main categories of analogs that the government uh, offered in the case. So the first is, uh, you know, broadly speaking, these historical laws that were premised on some group determination of dangerousness. Um, so some of these dealt with, uh, you know, some of these dealt with disfavored groups um, who were, uh, who were banned from possessing firearms, um, loyalists, you know, their religion-based bans. Um, but there are also proposals in various state ratifying conventions that are sort of related to this dangerousness idea. Um, and the court says that those uh, those laws, either they, they're too old or they had a different purpose. They weren't sort of an individualized determination of dangerousness. They're a group determination. Um, we can get into that because I think that's a, a little bit of an odd way to distinguish a historical analog. Um, but that, that's the first category. Um, the second category is uh, laws from around the time of the founding, early America, that uh, codified this common law crime of going armed to the terror of the people. Um, and the court uh, has, has a number of reasons for distinguishing these laws away. Um, but again, they, they focus on the purpose. They say these laws were uh, intended to a slightly different purpose and that they, um, you know, only operated through criminal process. Right. So so in the in the case of this domestic violence restraining order provision, there's only there's a civil determination, right, not a criminal determination. So that's one way that the court distinguishes those laws. Um, and then finally, uh, the government points to surety laws. Um, so these are laws um, also from the founding era, the early to mid 1800s that uh, required or sorry, uh, authorized somebody to come forward to a court and say, um, you know, I have a reasonable fear that a certain individual um, might cause injury or harm to property. And I want them to post a bond before being allowed to carry firearms, for example, in public. Um, And the court in Rahimi says that actually these surety laws are pretty close. Um, They they actually are are sort of animated by the same purpose as the domestic violence restraining order ban, but because the burden on Second Amendment rights is, in the court's view, different. Um, The burden uh, of the modern prohibition obviously is a ban on possession during the duration of the restraining order. These historical laws did not ban possession. They only required the posting of surety. Um, And so the court says, therefore, these laws also do not qualify as analogs. Um, And that's sort of the end of the analysis, right? Those are are the categories that the government offers. The court says, nope, they're not uh, relevantly similar. And therefore, we have to strike the provision down. And and Andrew, it's really important to underline something that you're saying, which is that, uh, so we, we have this establishment of historical analogs. And it's the, really that and Dobbs. So we have we have very this is very new. So now we have what is usually a multi-decade process 
of figuring out what those words mean. What does the court mean by historical analog? And so this this is, I think, part of the chaos that I think Joseph was trying to allude to with all of the, the red checks on Westlaw that that call things into question. And we don't have a very uh, clear, consistent, formerly applied set of rules for what counts as a historical um, uh, analog. Um, Wilson does have a sort of interesting uh, piece about the people in which he, he admits that Rahimi isn't a model citizen, but he wants to seem to separate, as you said, what is criminal. So if he were convicted, if he were under indictment, if he were even released in pretrial bail, they would allow the guns to be taken away, but somehow the restraining order doesn't qualify there. And there seems to be, like, if you want to be very, very generous here, a concern about due process, one that in the concurrence you really see taken to um, an extreme. One thing that I found just um, shocking about Judge Wilson's opinion was the way that the uh, threat that Congress was dealing with is shifted. So in 1994, the threat is people who are uh, have committed intimate partner violence, people who have beaten their girlfriends up in a parking lot and threatened to shoot them. That's the concern. That's the threat. And that's why you would take the guns away. But the way Judge Wilson frames it is that Congress is the threat. And he, he sees, uh, foresees the government stripping, those are his words, speeders or people who do not recycle or drive an electric vehicle of their right to keep and bear arms, which for me was shocking because this seems to trivialize what Congress was trying to do in the first place, which was to say domestic abuse is a serious problem in the United States. Thousands of people are affected by it. Um, And yet the decision really doesn't seem focused on domestic abuse. And that sentence was shocking to me. Yes, Joseph, please. I was going to say, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm nodding along here, um, which I know the audio doesn't pick up, but um, what, you're, uh, what, what you're saying, I think, is just so important, um, Susan, is that, you know, it, there is no evidence about uh, a link between gun misuse and failure to recycle. Like, that, that's just, it's just, it has nothing to do with anything. But there is a very tight connection between intimate partner violence and guns. And that is something that, you know, research has shown for years and decades and common sense kind of confirms. And, and the gendered element of this is one that, you know, I just think we, we can't avoid. I mean, the, the, this, is, this is the leading threat for homicide for women uh, is intimate partner. And intimate partners with guns are the biggest category within that. And, you know, there are studies all over the place about the presence of a gun in an abusive situation, five times more likely to result in a homicide. I mean, Some studies I've seen say 11 times more likely. In any event, it's a dangerous combination and one that is totally different than speeding or recycling or or, or whatever else. I mean, I I just, I I found that shocking. I do agree. And I also want to underline this. Um, I think it comes through even more in Judge Ho's concurrence, which you just sort of um, alluded to, is that there's this sort of specter that the threat is either Congress or and they don't say it in so many words, but women abusing the process. Um, and, you know, Judge Ho has a few references to, you know, these, these kinds of um, uh, restraining orders subject to abuse. They're civil rather than criminal. People use them to get leverage in divorce proceedings. Like, you know, some of it accompanied by an anecdote or a citation to lots of cases involving orders that are different than the one here, right? Um, so they're not actually really apples to apples. But that seems to be like the real threat. Like nobody's going to defend Zaki Rahimi. Like nobody, other than his public defender or lawyers doing what they should do, doing their jobs, nobody's saying Zaki Rahimi should get a gun. But there is this sort of general theory that like, oh, you know, the people are going to be subject to these, you know, to these these civil orders. And here I really do just have to um, uh, 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 plug a fantastic blog post that Andrew uh uh, wrote on our blog, Second Thoughts, a while ago, noting this sort of civil criminal divide, um, uh, because they are different. And you and you flagged this, I think, rightly, Susan. The more that the courts are um, skeptical about civil processes being sufficient to um, deny a person a gun, then the more I think we're going to see challenges to things like uh, extreme risk protection orders, which are often called red flag laws, which allow, which is civil proceeding, that allows a gun to be taken temporarily from a person who a judge has found to be 
an immediate threat to themselves or others. And if those are also called into question, then this this case is going to have really big ramifications, I think, uh, at the at the state level, really across the country. Um, Joseph, I, I couldn't agree with you more about Judge Ho. I, I was beside myself after getting through the majority opinion, but I, I would go further than what you said. I, I think this is a clumsy dog whistle suggesting that harpy women seeking an advantageous divorce willy-nilly go in and use this restraining order for their own self-interest. The the story about David Letterman, this anecdote which has no place. What what I find fascinating, this is a, a point that I'm taking from Dahlia Lithwick, who said that you know one of the problems in 303 Creative, the uh, case about the web designer who doesn't want to do same-sex marriages, is that there isn't another side. The government becomes the other side. And here, in this case, we have the same problem. I'm, I wrote a piece about this case, and I called the woman, because I don't want to call her his girlfriend, I called her Miss DSSM, don't assault or shoot me, because she's the person who's lost, in particular in Judge Ho, but also in Judge Wilson's majority opinion. We know from real data that women don't report this kind of violence and send it into the criminal stream. And we know why, and we have data on it for, we have lots and lots of material. And you can uh, disagree on the margins, but not in the general uh, thrust. And so what is fascinating here is that domestic violence disappears in favor of recycling and David Letterman's reputation and some humiliation that he might experience for having a restraining order, as opposed to Joseph, what you were underlining earlier, and I'm sure Andrew uh, covers in this piece, if I remember it correctly, having to do with the actual people who die or have their heads bashed in in a parking lot. So it is. It, I think Lithwick is correct that the way this case gets framed, it is now Rahini against the government. But the person who is injured is gone from the case, and neither the majority or the concurrence makes any effort to reintroduce the, to go back to what you said earlier, the serious interest that Congress was trying to solve in the 1994 law. Um, Andrew, I can tell that you want to say something, so please. Yeah, I was just, just, just a couple points. I mean, I, first on the, the David Letterman, um, example, which you, uh, you know, which you noted that, that Judge Ho uses in his concurrence. I mean, it's especially confusing because that's not even, I mean, that's an ex parte order. That, that was obtained there, right? So it's, it's not even the type of restraining order that would make someone subject to this uh, firearms ban. So it's, it's not relevant at all. Um, but I think the other... Uh... This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The other so wait, interesting... Andrew, let me interrupt you. Why is sure. it there then? These are, these are supposed to be very, very careful federal judges. And there are very few federal judges, actually, you know, for the entire population so why I don't think most people reading this can understand the difference between the types that you're talking of, but why this judge should? So why would he not? Why would he not use some other? Uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's a great question. Analog. <laughs> um, I, I don't want to. I don't want to read too too much into this, and I, I think you know I think we should we should give the opinion and the concurrence kind of a charitable interpretation when we can. But I think it's actually basically the point that you just made, which is that. If, if people are reading this, they, they likely may not know the difference, right? So, I mean, it, it is kind of blurring these things. I, I mean, I don't think, I think if you're a federal judge, you know that you know the difference between these two types of restraining orders, but your audience might not. Um, so that's that's kind of how I. That, that's the only way I can I can really uh, make sense of the inclusion of that anecdote. Um, but but the other, uh, to me at least, uh, you know, kind of befuddling aspect of this concurrence is that. You know, if, if you go back to, to Bruin and this new test that the Supreme Court has laid down, um, there seems to be not a sort of party specific, but just a general determination 
that empirical evidence, arguments based on studies, you know, deference to scientific studies, that this is not, that this doesn't really have a role in, in the courtroom, that, that it shouldn't have a role in Second Amendment cases. You should look to history, right? And that is, that's proper because it constrains judicial determinations. Um, but here, you know, again, as Joseph mentioned, it's impossible really to just stop there if you if you think that the domestic violence restraining order ban should fall. It's not going to be convincing to anyone to say that the only reason that it should fall is because it's we don't have these types of specific laws around the time of the founding. So Judge Ho goes further and he offers what sounds a lot like the type of the very type of argument that uh, Bruin repudiated in in support of the result here. Um, and I don't, I think you're going to see that in other cases as well. Um, but it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, to me, at least it doesn't fit within that framework. If you're really focused on text, history, and tradition, I don't understand where these types of arguments come in. I completely agree with, I think Andrew put that perfectly, that, that this kind of consequentialist argument is exactly what Bruin says you're not supposed to do. Like this should be neither here nor there, uh, as far as the Bruin test, as far as the majority says it's doing the Bruin test. And if you are going to care about those consequences, and I should be clear, you know, the, it, the, the legal standards for getting a restraining order can in some, you know, in different places in different states be relatively easy to satisfy. It is, you can conjure an image of a situation in which, conjure hypothetical, in which one of these things could be subject to abuse. Does that happen sometimes? I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it at all. Is it anywhere near as important of a social problem as women who are being terrorized and murdered by armed uh, uh, partners, uh, armed abusers? I don't think so. I don't think it's even close. But again, if you're doing Bruin as the majority purports to be doing it, it shouldn't matter one way or the other. And so as Andrew says, like it's, it seems a little, this is a little sort of, you know, good for the goose, good for the gander kind of consequentialism, consequentialism, which I think is unfair. The other thing is that um, to, to, to your point from earlier, Susan, and to what Andrew's just saying about how we think about dangerous classes of persons, I mean, there's lots of different things to get into with the way the majority treats those historical examples that Andrew laid out so clearly. But one way they distinguish some of them, especially the big group based ones, is they say that, well, those were designed to prevent threats to the social and political order, not individualized threats. Now, to me, that's I don't understand totally why that would be, why that would make the second of those less constitutional. It seems that the individualized threats would fall within the threats to the social and political order. But it's also just bad history. I mean, this is a good example of judges not really being up, I think, to the task of doing this work, because as real historians have been doing this work for a long time, and here I'll, I'll just uh, I'll call out Laura Edwards, who's done fantastic work on this for, for a very long time. If to the degree domestic violence was subject to legal sanction in the early years of the Republic, it was often because it was seen as a threat to the social and political order, a threat to, as she puts it, puts it the public peace, right? It, it wasn't that people were concerned necessarily with, you know, the rights or the physical well-being of an abused person. It was that they were, they were worried about the threat to the peace more broadly. So even on the, I think, bad uh, uh, standard that the, or, or the bad sort of characterization that the majority has given to those historical laws, this case still should come out the other way. I mean, to me, it's like there's just, it, there's, there's error on top of error here. Andrew, I uh, thank you, Joseph, and and Andrew, I, I agree with Joseph. I think what you said uh, about the juxtaposition of data, science, studies being off the table now, which I I don't think, and this comes out in the article that the two of you wrote together for Polity, we think about policy being made in response to data, in response to the fact that you know there are twenty thousand phone calls placed to domestic violence hotlines each day in the United States. That was what Congress thought that it was addressing. And here, the court has written that out. And they've written out the individual who, in fact, the violence that he uh, is purported and I think proved to have done and the threat that he has issued, which involved shooting. So it wasn't just a generalized threat. It was very specific gun-oriented threat is written out of the case. Um, and I and I also think that any sort of uh, test that in, uh, involves the 18th and 19th century is going to be problematic in general for women because they did not have the same sort of rights in either 1791 or slightly better in 1868, but still not there. 
And if domestic violence doesn't become part of the traditional legal uh, approach and goal until the 1970s, it seems to me that then people can write whatever they want and Congress is is out of luck. Um, thinking about this going to the Supreme Court, what are you to, what is most top of mind for you? Um, the, I'll say that the Duke Center spent a lot of time after 2008 to assemble in good faith uh, historical information about uh, gun laws since the 18th century to the present. I think they, in good faith, believed that the court might use them. I don't believe that's actually come to pass because I, I think that Andrew is correct that this is not a matter of carefully weighing history. It's a matter of just taking what you need in a particular case and moving on. Uh, Justice Kagan has sort of made a plea this uh, term of like, maybe we just need to think about what right, what's right and wrong. Uh, maybe making these kinds of originalist arguments is dangerous. Where are you both now going into the fall? Has the originalist ship sailed and there's absolutely nothing to be done about it? Uh, and, and we, the, the justices who disagree will just still have to keep in within that framework. Is there any way to push back to say, I think this case shows how utterly ridiculous it is and it doesn't work and get, are there justices who could be picked off in that for such an argument involving domestic violence? What do you think will happen just broadly? You don't have to answer my questions in the Supreme Court this fall. I don't think we're going to see a retreat from the originalist project. Um, I think that the the court, and actually, frankly, in some respects, again, to repurpose Justice Kagan, there is a sense in which we are all originalists now. They are all comfortable, you know, using historical arguments. They see them pointing in different directions. I mean, you see this in the uh, in Students for Fair Admissions, the affirmative action case from this term, where, you know, the justices are coming to very different conclusions about what the history says about the constitutionality of race-based uh, admissions policies today. But it's, it is part of the grammar now of constitutional argument. It has been for a while. I don't think that's going to change. But within the broad family of originalism, there are, I think, tests that work better than others and approaches that work better than others. And there is a lot to be said and figured out for you know, exactly how this stuff works. I mean, just to pick one example um, here to shout out uh, uh, Andrew's forthcoming paper. I mean, one of the things that the court does in Bruin is discount the value of laws from the territories, that is the territory of the United States before they became states. And the court basically is like, well, they're not states, so we don't count them, right? Now, that, that is, that's a big consequential decision, potentially, because it just takes off the board potentially a lot of gun regulations that we might, that we might care about. And as Andrew points out, well, Actually, if you go back to the 1800s, the territories, rather than the states, were the ones that were subject to the Constitution. The states were not subject to the Constitution until a process called incorporation, which has really taken, taken place over the past century. I know that all sounds very technical, but it's a big point within originalism, right? Like, what do you count? Do you count the territories? Do you count the states? A lot of stuff to, like that to be worked out. As I see it, and this is what Eric and I argue in our in our um, Yale Law Journal piece, which are nice to mention, is that there's at least two steps to this. There's like, which things do you look at? Like, what's the data, right? The historical examples that you're allowed to look at. The harder question under Bruin, I think, is what is, how do you decide whether those are or are not relevantly similar to a modern law? And Rahimi is a great example of just how malleable that is. Um, you know, as Andrew mentioned in his explanation of the case, you know, there were a lot of laws, relatively speaking, that disarmed groups thought to be dangerous uh, in 1791 and again in 1868. Obviously, the groups that people in 1791 believed to be dangerous are different than the groups that today we believe to be dangerous. They targeted largely Black Americans, Native Americans, as Andrew said, loyalists, right? Very different. All those are unconstitutional today for reasons above and beyond the Second Amendment. But if we take the concept of dangerousness as the thing that we compare, you know, the old and the new laws, then Rahimi, I think, is an easy case um, that he's dangerous. This is a category of people Congress has determined to be dangerous. In his case, a judge looked at it and said, this guy's dangerous. So, you know, that that should be, I would think, under even a very originalist approach. I don't think the court has to walk back Bruin to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Remember we said you can analogize, like, here's how to do it. Um, and, you know, the justices, uh, 
then judge Amy Coney Barrett did this in a, in a prominent dissenting opinion when she's on the seventh circuit that employed this concept of dangerousness. So I think we're going to see that in the second circuit, uh, sorry, in the second amendment context specifically, and also just generally, I think the court is committed to originalism as part of the constitutional grammar. That part's probably, probably not, not going to change. What do you, I mean, Andrew, you, you're, you're closer to the cases in the lower courts. Did it seem, seem about the same to you? Yeah, I think so. I, I think in terms of your broader point, Susan, about the originalist project, I, I actually I read Bruin to sort of have or, or leave open some kind of escape hatch for this very situation. Right. I mean, the, the justices write the majority opinion in Bruin says that when you have an unprecedented societal concern, you're supposed to use a more nuanced analysis. Now, I think it's 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 fair if you're a lower court judge to sort of read that and say, well, what does that what does that actually mean? Right. I, I don't really understand what that means. But I, I personally find it hard to read those words and not go straight to something like domestic violence, right? I mean, that seems like the paradigmatic example of an unprecedented societal concern where there is a federal and many state, you know, prohibitions on domestic violence offenders or people subject to restraining orders possessing firearms. So I, I think that that's, you know, that's one maybe way in which Bruin is sort of malleable to begin with. And the justices could say, well, you know, this is, we, we wrote in Bruin that you need to do a uh, a more nuanced, a higher generality analysis, and the Fifth Circuit didn't do that. Um, I, I did just want to mention, you know, jo- Joseph raised uh, Justice Barrett's uh, dissenting opinion when she was a, a circuit judge on the Seventh Circuit, where she wrote that, in her view, history is consistent with common sense. There's a, uh, a broader dangerousness principle um, supported by history. So um, governments can disarm uh, individuals they determine to be dangerous. And according to her uh, dissent, she said, well, that's both broader and narrower than just felons. So I think that would probably, you know, include people like Rahimi, most likely. Um, it may not include someone like, you know, a person convicted of uh, white collar fraud, for example, right? They may not be dangerous. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, the court ultimately adopt that view in some form. And I think uh, Justice Barrett is, is someone to keep an eye on as potentially being the author of the opinion here. And one thing just to add on that is that even if the court, as I expect that they will, em- em- embrace this idea that dangerous people groups can be disarmed, it's not necessarily the case that that's the only historical basis on which groups were disarmed. I mean, like the Quakers, for example, disarmed in various places, not on the basis of dangerousness, but because they were outsiders to the political community, lacked you know, either civic virtue or the capacity for civic virtue, perhaps the same rules for disarming minors uh, uh, and, and others. So it could be that there is a sort of a series of of bases, historical bases on which a person could be disarmed. But dangerousness, I think, is certainly going to be one of them. So if the court, uh, you, you both seem to imagine that um, Barrett, and then there has to be somebody else who would join uh, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson, who might put together uh, a, a brief that without relying on the data regarding domestic violence would somehow be able to say this is a social problem and it's not one and, 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 and phrase the originalism so that they could get the outcome that they want. Um, is there anything that can be done prior to the court deciding this opinion, um, either by the Congress, the president, anyone else in the political uh, arena that could shore up this kind of uh, policy to go back to what you guys were writing about for polity, like is there policy room left for power for for Congress? I mean, I think political scientists would see this as just yet another example of the court taking more power for themselves and taking it away from the other branches of government. But is there anything anyone else can do about this, or do we just have to wait for the Supreme Court? It's a really good question, and and in some ways, I, I I feel like I should you know just caveat by saying I'm much more comfortable talking about within the court than kind of you know what would work or not uh, politically or policy wise. Just recognizing my own um, uh, sort of limitations uh, as as a scholar who focuses in constitutional law, I would say that you know despite Rahimi and there have been other cases striking down um, uh, uh, state and federal gun laws. It's still the case that most gun laws are being upheld in most courts uh, in most places in the country. And I, you know, that's true with the exception of a few trial courts in the state of New York. Um, That's true of red flag laws, for example, um, which are probably the most 
significant recent development at the state level in the last 10 years, right? Those are still overwhelmingly being upheld. Um, I think we are in a time of chaos and transition, but I expect the Supreme Court in Rahimi to give some guidance, which I think will um, hopefully prove reassuring for those who support those the constitutionality of those kinds of laws. I mean, to the first part of your question, which is a little closer to something I feel like I can speak to, I, I mean, I think the who would join um, with the sort of Kagan, Sotomayor, and, and Jackson is an interesting question. Um, I think that Judge Barrett's opinion in the Cantor uh, case, which um, uh, Andrew and I both uh, referred to, is uh, easily portable uh, to the Rahimi context. Um, so I think it would make sense. But also, and this is what I think is just so interesting about the connection between Bruin and Heller, is that three justices, and here I'm thinking about Justice Kavanaugh, uh, who wrote a concurrence joined by Chief Justice Roberts, and also even Justice Alito, entered opinions, concurring opinions in Bruin, effectively saying, look, we're not going back on Heller. We're not changing anything we said in Heller. And in fact, Justice Kavanaugh cuts and pastes like the portion of the Heller opinion, which had been the basis for most Second Amendment law since. Like they're trying to trying to downplay, it seems, the radicalism of the Bruin majority test. And to the degree that they join with enough justices to make a majority to write an opinion trying to downplay uh, Bruin's break from the sort of prior doctrine, it may be that, you know, what we get is essentially an opinion saying, look, just as in the lead up to Bruin, courts had overwhelmingly upheld 922 G8 and G9, the provisions that have to do with domestic violence, um, so still should they be constitutional now? Like, in other words, trying to just sort of smooth out the line of, of transit. That seems entirely possible, plausible, maybe even likely. Hey, Andrew, what do you think? Yeah, I, th I think that's right. I mean, I think that's probably the, the sort of grouping of justices I would imagine could sign on to that type of opinion, too. Um, you know, namely Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh, right, who I think in their concurrence are, um, are, are pretty clear in that they're, they're, they're trying to maybe narrow the, their view of what the, what the scope of the majority opinion is. Um, and, and I'll also, you know, also say here that there are justices, including Justice Alito, who have emphasized in past cases, um, you know, how important they consider uh, 922G to be, right? How, how important they consider these prohibitions to be to federal criminal law. Um, and so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's it's possible that the opinion actually could be, um, you, know, you, you could get a, a, a good number of justices in the majority. I think that would have to be a, an opinion that was narrow enough to, to really not, you know, not, not purport to decide other types of, of of, of challenges to gun regulations, but really just saying, look, in, in this in this specific case, um, you know, the specific issue of domestic violence, G8 and G9, um, those are still constitutional. And I think it'll be interesting. Uh, we, we don't have any sort of writing about this, but we know that the Chief Justice is concerned about low public opinion numbers for the court, the legitimacy of the court. And this is an interesting case in which most Americans are don't favor the rights of people who beat up people in parking lots and threaten to shoot them. I mean, the facts of the case are so specific to guns and so specific to the threat that Congress sought to address in 1994 that I wonder, as the court is thinking about its legitimacy and thinking about the extent to which it is being challenged this will seem ludicrous to a lot of ordinary Americans. They, they will need to explain why this is the case in a way that they might not in the case of New York State rifle and pistol in which the two plaintiffs are a little bit different and perhaps they're more understandable and connectable for, um, for many Americans who you know own rifles for self-defense, uh, guns for self-defense or rifles for, for hunting. Um, I'm going to have you guys call back, but I want you to have a last word on what you think. But we'll be talking about this case again come come the fall. But yeah, Joseph, some some last thoughts, and Andrew, you too. I'll say two quick things: one narrow and one a little bigger. On the on the narrow point, what I just wanted to underscore what you were saying about the facts of this particular case, since that's kind of where we started. I mean, I, I think there is potentially a danger in that the facts of this case are so bad. Um, that Zaki Rahimi himself appears to be such an obviously dangerous person that the court might rule in favor of the government. And then the takeaway for some people will be that this is the standard. 
that Zaki Rahimi is your baseline for who is who is subject to disarmament. And that that I think would be a bad result um, because it should not be the case that only after one has attacked a person, fired a gun at a bystander who, you know, to scare off a bystander who saw it, and then engaged in probably close to half a dozen gun-related probably crimes in the aftermath, like that can't be the 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 floor for what it takes to be disarmed. I think that would be that would be a bad result. The more broad thing I think is just to 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 note, I guess, um, what you said about that we'll be having these conversations again. What an extraordinary time this is for the Second Amendment. Um, that in the past, you know, year alone, um, uh, from Bruin now to Rahimi, I mean the. The, the activity in the lower courts, uh, it's just extraordinary. There are other cases pending before the Supreme Court now or soon will be, which could raise other cases, other questions of either the Second Amendment or firearms law more generally, like the uh, power under administrative law to regulate, for example, bump stocks. The court could hear that this term. So we've gone from a very sleepy area of legal scholarship to one where we're just busy all the time. And nobody knows that better than Andrew, who started his very first day on the job was the day Bruin came down. So he has had no experience other than living in this this crazy post-Bruin uh, post world. Well, Andrew, really you get the last word here. Um, yeah, yeah. And just to pick up on that. So, you know, the, other cases that I think, you know, are, are potentially likely to come up in the, in the coming years include things like assault weapons bans, challenges to, to state laws banning semi-automatic weapons, challenges to sensitive places restrictions. Um, but, I, but I expect that, you know, I expect that, that A, this, that Rahimi will not purport to sort of broadly settle this area of law. Um, in any way, or, or, you know, to walk back the Bruin test in any, in any substantive way, um, and that therefore the court will need to get involved in some of these other issues, because we have seen in the year since Bruin profound disagreement among the lower federal courts about uh, basic questions of, of how to apply Bruin, right? How many, uh, how many analogs do you need from history? Um, what, what point in history do you look at? Um, do courts need to or should they consider expert testimony and expert submissions when evaluating the history? Um, so I think it'll be uh, uh, important to keep an eye on this area, and I'm sure we'll, we'll be talking again soon. Well, uh, Andrew and Joseph, thank you so much. And yes, we will be talking again. I will have links to all of the things that you have mentioned, the various writings and people um, in the show notes so that people can take a look at things that um, have been talked about in the podcast. Thank you both for taking the time. It is always a learning experience to talk with you about the Second Amendment. Thank you both. Thank you, Susan. Thanks so much. <laughs>